I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. We're recording. Oh, yay. Hi, Elise. Hi, Corey. How are you today? 
I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing okay. It was a long day at work today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know the feels. I know the feels. Like I said, my back's hurting today. So Mm -hmm. we're 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 in a a state today. And we're sitting on the ground in our closets. So the glamorous life of podcasting. (laughs) But we have a very exciting recording session today. We are wrapping up King Lear. Yes. I am so excited to talk about this. We're going to, like we did with Twelfth Night and Macbeth, talk about some adaptations. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to start off strong, come out swinging, but I enjoyed watching King Lear's more than yes. I did the other two, Macbeth? I think. Well, certainly Macbeth. Yeah. But I know we're going to talk about two films mm-hmm. that we both watched, and then you have some notes about some other productions that have been significant. But yeah, these two films that we watched, I was like, man, can we get more of this? I know. I wonder if it's because Macbeth deals with the supernatural and tyranny. And so filmmakers and directors want to put their own twist on it in ways that make me tilt my head and go, really? But King Lear might be simpler. Maybe. Or maybe it's just more, it lends itself more to modern film than Macbeth actually does. Maybe Macbeth is just too theatrical. Right. And King Lear is about a lot more about personal relationships and character journey than some of these other plays are. Who knows? Right. Thinking of Twelfth Night where it's whimsical in a lot of ways. So, mm-hmm. And still you have some very theatrical elements like the darkroom scene that right. can be difficult to make work on a purely visual medium. Yeah. And even the cross-dressing, I would say. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if... Part of why King Lear lends itself more to film is because of the emergence of King Lear from the time it was first put on the stage through like World War II and now. Because some of my reading um, noted that in Shakespearean terms, the 1960s saw King Lear, quote, usurping the throne securely occupied by Hamlet, emerging as the keystone of the canon, Mm. unquote. And uh, a lot of Shakespeare critics found existential futility in King Lear, that Lear is a tragic grotesque, quote, that exposes the absurdity of apparent reality, unquote. And maybe that is why it lends itself to modern film. Mm. And maybe just more to our more modern sensibilities as well, because the 1960s have the theater of the absurd and the grotesque Mm -hmm. and questioning humanity's place in the universe. Yes. Mm -hmm. But with that said, shall we talk about our first film? Yes, let's. Okay, so first up, we're going to talk about the 2008 film of King Lear that was directed by Trevor Nunn and broadcast on More 4 in the UK and then shown on PBS Great Performances in the United States. And this features the same cast and director as the 2007 RSC production. And I think very similarly to other Trevor Nunn adaptations for film, It's on a soundstage. Mm -hmm. This felt very much like the classic RSC for BBC performances of Macbeth. It was on a soundstage. It feels like they've just picked up the RSC production and put it on a soundstage. Yeah. That's the first thing I wrote was theatrical, dark. They used a spotlight in the opening scene that shone down on Lear while other cast members, other characters surrounded him. And it felt very heavenly, very, very theatrical. Mm -hmm. And very grand. This is not a like claustrophobic production at all. There's a lot of space 
around these actors on screen. Yeah. Well, let's talk about those actors. Some of the actors that you may know, we have Sir Ian McKellen playing King Lear, Romola Garai playing Cordelia, uh, William Gaunt playing the Earl of Gloucester, Jonathan Hyde playing Earl of Kent, Philip Winchester playing Edmund, Sylvester McCoy playing the Fool, Francis Barber playing Goneril, Monica Dolan playing Regan, Guy Williams playing Duke of Cornwall, Ben Regis as Edgar, and Julian Harries as the Duke of Albany. If you are a King Lear purist, this is about as classic. Everything's in there. The storm scene for me was a highlight. Yeah. And if you are looking for as close to a full text film adaptation as possible, um, this isn't like an original practice production. No. But there's not that many liberties taken with it. No. I was checking in with my art in third edition to see what was being cut and how much. And most of the story is there, but they cut lines mm -hmm. and chunks of dialogue yeah. in order to cut down. It's a three-hour film. And so, I would say, as a warning, it feels like three hours. Yeah. The pacing is slow. <laughs> I agree. That was my biggest critique of it, actually, was that the pacing was a little bit too slow and deliberately so. Yeah, which might have translated excellently if you go to the theater and right. see it, you know, at the Royal Shakespeare Company. But for a film, it was like, okay, mm -hmm. let's pick up the pace. But it allows us to really see Edmund, for example, that pace that they mm -hmm. take really allows for Edmund to deliver his speeches as direct addresses to yeah. camera, yes. which make for some really compelling moments. Some of those speeches were my some of my favorite parts of this film. I actually really enjoyed Edmund's performance because the actor had a like Jekyll and Hyde. You know, we know as the audience that Edmund is going to play everyone as a fool in order to get his father's title and estate. However, the actor made very deliberate choices with his voice and his demeanor. And sometimes that can be a bit hokey. But with this adaptation, it worked in his favor. It was cool because he leaned into being wholly evil. So he like laughed before some speeches. There was ominous music that played under Bad Edmund. And he had a low and menacing voice and then countered that with a Edmund that I felt bad for at first. But once you know, you know that he's plotting, yeah, that gets taken away from us. And we're like, oh, okay, well, you're just an ass. Yeah. And speaking of one of the reasons why I think I felt bad for him in the beginning was I was like, oh, this Gloucester is a jerk at the top. An actor who made some choices that really gave that character a solid through line. He wasn't just a nice guy to everybody who gets screwed over by his illegitimate son. He was really awful to his illegitimate son. And not that he deserved it, but you definitely go, oh, I understand where Edmund's coming from and why the division. Yeah. And speaking of the division, I also thought that they made very clear choices with both how they cast Goneril Regan and Cordelia, and then the choices those actors made really, mm -hmm. I think, made it clear that there was an idea that Goneril and Regan are children of a first wife, and then Cordelia is from a second marriage. Which any production could technically make that decision because we don't have really any backstory mm -hmm. for any of these characters. 
So you could very clearly do that. Like they cast older actors to play Goneril and Regan, and then one that was younger. And Goneril and Regan dressed more similarly. Like I could see yes. them sharing a wardrobe, and then Cordelia's costume was drastically different. Yeah, there's a lot like, of like visual clues right at the top mm-hmm. of like who was who um, and who mm-hmm. was going to be aligned with whom. Yeah. One thing that I found very interesting at the top was that Cordelia was not just seated with her sisters, but she was standing behind King Lear at the top of the how much do you love me game scene. Like mm-hmm. like she was essentially his queen or something. Like, yeah, I was like, oh, wow. Like, that's a position that a child should not be in, which reminded me of our conversations we've had about the relationship that Lear puts his children in in making them like mother-wife characters. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then on top of that, this Cordelia was really bold with her decisions. She was not afraid to speak her mind. And there was a very noticeable comfort between her and her father, Lear. And Goneril and Regan seem much more on edge. So the favoritism and the role, the very inappropriate role that Cordelia plays for her father was incredibly obvious with the blocking and the actor's reactions. Like specifically in the How Much Do You Love Me game, I found it interesting that the camera did a close-up on Goneril and there was this revelation for her that there was competition and there was one for Regan as well, but we didn't get a close-up on Cordelia. Mm -hmm. We didn't even get her line, her aside. So yeah, I liked those acting choices or directorial choices to give Goneril and Regan some sort of like inner dialogue about this situation and make very clear that they have opinions about it or that they've had to do something like this before or something like to me it read as Goneril going oh no internal cringe but I know what I have to do to get through this and like survive and not incur the wrath and then Regan being like yes having some sort of nervousness and she was also frequently drinking Mm -hmm. Regan always had a goblet of wine in her hand. And it very much seems like, are they just playing the game because they know the game and they've been on this receiving end and then Cordelia chooses to not play along? Like, are these two just doing what they need to do to survive? I also loved, just skipping a little bit more into, um, Frances Barber had, I think, one of the best versions of the scene after she kicks Lear out of her house. Oh, yeah. With Oswald. And... You can see the fear that she has of his state of mind, his behavior, and his 100 nights. Mm-hmm. It very much felt like the idea of warning Regan was not malicious towards Lear, but it really came from a place of deep-seated fear and almost like sisterly protection of this sister who seemed to be weaker or more intimidated by their father. That was beautiful. <laughs> Yeah. And I think it's the same scene when Lear and Goneril are smiting each other. Mm -hmm. This is when Lear is furious at her and he is in the background in focus and furious. Goneril is in the foreground and she's a little bit blurry and she's avoiding eye contact and she's taking in her father's curse. And Goneril has these tears in her eyes that she's trying so hard to suppress. Yes. And when Lear re-enters and Goneril is in the background out of focus watching her father. Um, Lear is in the foreground and he is in focus avoiding his daughter and he's tearing up the letter. 
And I think this is when he's also and he's crying, going yeah. to start crying. Yeah. Yeah. And then when he leaves, tears are streaming down her face. She's so upset. Mm-hmm. These women aren't jerks. They don't start off right. this way, but it's a just a really fraught relationship Pushes. on so many levels between each daughter and their father. Yeah. Oh, it was incredible to watch. I thought that that was another highlight. Very yeah. moving. Yeah. Yeah. There was so much depth to Goneril, not just an evil woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was very clear they started off worried about what was going to happen about their father's state of mind and then upset and overwhelmed by what was going on. And this adaptation does include a very rowdy train. Yes. So it really shows the, those nights. Yes. The nights and Lear and when the fool has his first scene, mm-hmm. that scene, which is on Goneril's estate, they're singing, they're dancing, they're clapping, they're drinking. Uh, Lear is having a jolly good time. Sir Ian McKellen had such a jolly Lear who could quickly uh, flip into rage. It was actually quite scary, like watching him go mm-hmm. from laughing and being joyous and then processing that he wasn't getting his way and then flipping the script. Yeah. But because Trevor Nunn chose very rowdy nights, mm-hmm. it helped to elevate the sisters' case for why they do what they do. It elevates their motivation. Yeah. And I liked that they leaned away from like the virtuous Lear who is unfairly treated. Yeah. Yeah. And the fool was quite fun. Oh, yeah. Quite childish, silly. And then there was this cool reveal where, at least for me, it was cool, especially leaning into our conversation about aging. Lear, Kent, Gloucester, they're all aged men. And then the fool takes off a wig and you see he's got gray hair and he's also he's also old. old. They're all from the same generation. Yeah. And leaning into the generational conflict. Mm-hmm. I also was very intrigued by the choice made around the fool's death. Mm. Yeah. We don't actually, in the script, know what happens to the fool. Yeah. So, like, all we know from the script is that the fool has a speech where he is left on stage alone, delivers a direct address to the audience, is never seen again. And then we get a line from Lear at the very end as he's bewailing Cordelia that says, and my Mm -hmm. poor fool is hanged. That's it. Yeah. So this production chose to depict the fool being hanged. Yeah. And delivering that monologue while he was being captured in the process. Yeah. Hanged. Mm hmm. Yeah. I'm going to lean towards interesting because, you know, it's me. I don't think it's necessary to explain like one line about offstage action. But I did go, oh, that's a unique solution if you are concerned that we're going to go, wait, what happened to the fool? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's not always necessary, but I actually thought it was a fine choice because I felt connected to the fool. Yeah. I enjoyed this fool. And it also was a stronger case for how heinous Regan and Goneril have become. Yes. It definitely um, served as like a turning point in how they were dealing with Lear being out in the storm. Out in the storm. Do we want to talk about poor Tom? Okay. Do you have thoughts on poor Tom? I was underwhelmed by Edgar in general and as poor Tom. It was nothing like inherently wrong or bad, but it was just underwhelming for me. So 
Yeah, I felt similarly and probably need to reread the script and then see other adaptations. But I thought there was something cheap about the madness and the primitiveness of poor Tom that felt like it was in bad taste. Same. I felt like there were some choices that did not age well, perhaps, between 2008 and today. But I also feel like they were not good choices in 2007 and 2008. Let me put it like that. It was that in a production where we have these interesting and thoughtful choices made for just about every other character, it felt like a letdown to basically be like, I was like, yeah, I can go to like any theater that is just trying to put up a production of Lear and Mm -hmm. there's going to be a poor Tom like this. I feel bad for the poor actor because so many characters sparkled. I cared about pretty much most of the main characters. Like Lear, I felt for Goneril, Regan, Edmund, Gloucester. Fantastic performances and choices. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it was just, it was fine. It felt maybe like a little bit too classic. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, "Mm, is this blackface adjacent? Yeah. Is this? Is this appropriate? but I also was watching it with somebody who's played Edgar before. That person said, yeah, no, this isn't it. <laughs> like, this is... <laughs> this is not the move. And they were like, I don't even think that I fully got Edgar. And I, as an actor, do have to fully say Edgar is probably the most challenging of all of the roles. Yes. But this is Royal Shakespeare Company. Mm-hmm. You expect a little better. So the storm. I loved having a storm. Loved it. I loved it. It was brutal. Yeah, it was brutal. I was thinking about these poor actors and how wet and cold and uncomfortable they were mm-hmm. and how that clearly would inform the choices that you make as an actor. Yeah. The discomfort of these characters. Yeah. Simultaneously, it was impressive to see these actors alone, surrounded by nothing. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it was like, This is the limitation of a soundstage. Like, there are walls back there. But yeah, it was brutal. It was feral. Like, it really got to Mm -hmm. just how wild that scene is. Yeah. It made me feel better about King Lear descending into madness. Mm. Say more on that. Seeing King Lear drenched and soaked and cold and like sloshing through mud probably like crunching on twigs you know not necessarily on stage but in this world where i see like once king lear is off stage before Mm -hmm. he comes back on especially when he's got his crown which is a flower crown and he's you know got a change of clothes that's dirty it felt more justified that he might I don't want to say be losing his mind because, again, we're not here to armchair diagnose, but the circumstances made it feel less egregious that he would, quote unquote, devolve into madness. It's still leaning into stereotypes about what madness is and and a bit of primitivism, but at least it felt at least like it was motivated. Yeah. Whether it was right or wrong, it at least felt motivated is what I'm trying to say. Oh, yeah. I agree. Okay. (laughs) Then we have Gloucester's eye removal. Yeah. Cornwall and Regan are in a bloody ecstasy. Yeah, they get turned on by this. Yeah, they do. Yep. It was a 
spectacular scene to watch because it seems like the actors have to make such a jump in their mental, emotional state mm -hmm. when they're off stage because we don't see a lot of the change. Most of the change comes off stage and then they re-enter in a certain state and like yeah, stuff that happens on stage, they do react to. So I'm not saying that they're at their height in that scene, like from the top. No, no, no. The scene just felt so motivated and so organic and so interesting to watch. So, mm -hmm. and it was kind of neat seeing that theatrics, how they yeah. maneuvered it. It was, it was gruesome. It was. Yeah. What I liked about it is that there was like a discovery of the glee. Like, we like this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. a very interesting um, turn to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Super fun. I would watch this production again. Yeah. Yeah, I'd watch it again. I'm ready to talk about the next one. Nice. Okay. Okay. And I'm just going to say, I would definitely, definitely watch this one again. Mm-hmm. So this one that we're talking about is the 2018 film directed by Richard Ear, starring Anthony Hopkins as King Lear. It was a made-for-TV film for BBC Two. It is not three hours long. It is cut down to just under two hours. Yeah. One hour and 55 minutes, including credits. Including credits. It is... <laughs> a tight adaptation. It's like everything you need to know about King Lear in the shortest amount of time. Yes. And I found it very accessible. Yeah. That's a good word for and it. And let me just talk about this cast is incredible. Like this is stacked. We have, like I said, Anthony Hopkins as Lear, Emma Thompson as Goneril, Emily Watson as Regan, Jim Broadbent as Earl of Gloucester, Florence mm -hmm. Pugh as Cordelia. Jim Carter as Earl of Kent. Yeah, so any Downton fans, I yeah. will say, as soon as I realized who was on, on the screen, I was like, oh my gosh, it's Carson. It's yeah. Carson. Mr. Imelda Staunton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew Scott, for Fleabag fans, that is Hot yes. Priest. Hot Priest. Is Edgar. <laughs> John McMillian is Edmund. Tobias Menzies, who plays King Charles in The crown the crown and then he was in game of thrones as well yes yeah he plays duke of cornwall then there's anthony calf as duke of albany carl johnson as fool doctor who fans christopher eccleston is oswald no. this adaptation is set in an alternate universe it's 21st century highly militarized london and that's what you got to know about the setting that's the world that this Lear has been plopped right down into. And plopped into. And I loved this version. Like I said, I found it very accessible. I think that this cast is perfection. Yes. I have like a few critiques of it. Same. It cuts a lot. It has to, to yeah. cut that play down. One of the things that it takes a lot from is Edmund. Yeah. Edmund and a lot of The Fool is gone too. Yeah, but I liked The Fool. I felt like The Fool was just enough. I think because The Fool was like a presence. That's totally fair. And it also cuts a decent amount of the storm scene. So if you are a true Lear purist, you may not enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But my big takeaway from this one was I was like, if I was a high school English teacher and I was teaching Lear, I would choose this one. I'd maybe read the play, watch this one, talk about like cutting an adaptation and maybe watch the other one as like a 
full length? How do we like compare and contrast these two? Right. And how do you take the medium of film and you use film to your advantage? Yes. The film choices were fantastic. This was a film King Lear. Yeah. Instead of trying to do what we do in, in the theater. Capture something theatrical on film. Mm-hmm. Anthony Hopkins, I really liked. He is not a kind Lear. No, but I liked that. Yeah. Not to compare them, but I mm-hmm. felt like McKellen kind of plays age a little bit. Yeah. And I didn't see any of that with Hopkins. No. I loved what they did with age in this, with the age of the daughters. Mm-hmm. Florence Pugh is significantly younger, but also there's a decent age gap between Emma Thompson and Emily Watson. Mm-hmm. And the fool was old. Yeah. Appeared to be the same age as Lear. They could have been childhood friends. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that. Yeah. I think that is a very effective casting decision because Mm -hmm. it better explains their relationship. Yeah. Yeah, same thing with Kent. Kent being older. And I'd say the same with Jim Broadbent as Earl of Gloucester. I also thought that Jim Broadbent was just a fantastic (sighs) Gloucester. Yeah, he was. Again, somebody who, you know, he just did a really good job of being, you're like, oh, like this guy's kind of rude to his son. And -hmm. then by the end, you really felt for him. Yeah. Yeah. They made choices that made your sentiments 180. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there were a lot of similarities in acting choices. So I wonder, being that these are two British productions 10 years Mm -hmm. apart, how much is just the inheritance of the choices that Trevor Nunn made? Just to go from the start of the play that, you know, how much do you love me game? We see Emma Thompson also have this inner monologue moment of, okay, Gird up. I guess we got to go do this now. Maybe even like, let's go through the Rolodex of what works with my father. What have I learned? Uh huh. You know, from a very a moment of calculation. Yeah. I think one thing that this did clearer was Emily Watson as Regan was also visibly nervous, Mm -hmm. but they laid in Tobias Menzies as Duke of Cornwall, kind of pushing her to step a little bit outside of her comfort zone. They utilized reaction shots. More so than the RSC would yes. have done. So you could yes. see... Lawrence the... Pugh is reacting the yeah. entire time to what are... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what the sisters are doing. Everyone's making facial expressions and the director wants us to be clued in to that character's thought because mm-hmm. they have a reaction shot at a specific time versus going to the theater. And who knows where the audience's eye is, yeah. you know. Which is a great... On. I think it's one of the strengths of this and why it makes such a good film adaptation is a lot of times with Shakespeare, Shakespeare tells us in text how another character is responding. Right. Right. Or that another character in scene is doing something that I as a character I'm speaking about. And Mm -hmm. on film, we get the chance to show that rather than tell that. Mm -hmm. And I think that this does a fantastic job of doing just that. And some of those cuts, I was like, that shot is making up for this cut. Right. They're just showing us. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need the words. We don't. Yeah. Moments like that were very thoughtfully done. Yeah. How we should be understanding these situations. Right. Like, for example, when Lear has his also really rowdy train of knights, they return to Goneril's estate 
and they've been hunting and they are drinking. They're like throwing dead ducks onto the porch and singing and being obnoxiously loud. And the choice that Richard Iyer made was to cut between Goneril and Albany and the scene outside. So you get this building for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not focusing on the actual action. It's focusing on the impact that's having on the other characters that's going to drive the next moment. Exactly. Which, like, film audiences need because theater audiences experience it along with you. Right. Oh, I loved the relationship between Cordelia and Lear. I thought that the oh Cordelia versus yeah. King Lear came in hot in this film, mm-hmm. which was an incredible tool for Cordelia's fall from grace. And the Ian McKellen RSC did that as well. But it was incredibly effective in this yeah. film. And like there's this moment where Cordelia has said, you know, that she has nothing to say. And so then Lear leans back on the table and talks intimately to her. And the way that Anthony Hopkins and Florence Pugh are looking at each other just told me so much about the backstory that we do not get from the text. They really internalized and they really showed. And then I think that carries through to the end of the play as well. Mm -hmm. One thing that we get in this one that we do not get in the other one, and this is a director choice, I think, not an actor choice, Mm -hmm. but we really get the strong warrior Cordelia who comes back leading an army. Yeah. We see that potential in Florence Pugh. Cordelia is feisty. Yes. And strong-willed. She has a lot of the characteristics of her father. Yes. In this highly militarized. We, we really get to see that in action. Yeah. Um, when she comes back from France mm-hmm. looking for him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I loved Anthony Hopkins's Lear. Just, mm-hmm. I thought that it was a very gentle portrayal of quote-unquote madness. Mm-hmm. And I felt like he wasn't trying to be mad. He was just an old man who was having a really hard time. And Yeah. I wasn't the biggest fan of the surrounding circumstances that the film placed him being quote unquote mad in, like pushing around a cart yes. like he was yeah, living on living the streets. As an as unhoused yeah, person. Exactly. It was very yeah. reminiscent of like Sweeney Todd, Alms, and also like Mary Poppins, the bird lady. That was one of the moments that I was also taken mm-hmm. out of this movie where I was like, really? We had to go... This is with the direction? With yeah. that? But then once he was recovering, the moments before that and after that were very gentle and... Yeah. That brief scene? Mm, yeah. Questionable. Took me out a moment because I just, I was like, I don't understand why this choice in a film where everything else seems very grounded in a reality and perhaps it's because there was so much cut... And we really go to focus on Gloucester and Edgar for a while Mm -hmm. to all of a sudden choosing to depict the character that way was just like, um, where'd you, where Where did this come from? I'm not connecting the dots, director. In a film that otherwise helps us connect the dots really well. And there's some Edmund stuff that doesn't, the dots don't connect on. He really becomes a tertiary character. Um, which is unfortunate. Yeah, because the Edmund from RSC was dynamic and compelling. Yeah. But I got to say, this is a production where I went, oh, I finally get Edgar. And that's because of Andrew Scott's incredible. He is incredible. <laughs> like, he's able to utilize his voice to really have a difference between Edgar, Tom, mm-hmm. and Putting on a character random to, guy yeah. helping out Gloucester on the hill. Yeah. And while he was putting on this third voice he was 
reacting to his father's desire to jump and kill himself. Yes. From the moment that Edgar, as Tom, encounters Gloucester with the servant to essentially Gloucester's death was heart-wrenching. Right. And it was because of how Andrew Scott was reacting to what his father was going through. Yeah. And what had happened and things his father was saying and wanting to do and how much that hurt him. And I really was like, oh, this has given me a better understanding of Edgar. And I care. Usually I am like, Edmund's story is way more interesting. It is. But in this one. But this time it was like, nope, maybe, you know, we had to sacrifice a lot of Edmund's story to be able to really get to Edgar. Turn to Edgar's. Yeah. I would have to do a, a line count here, but it seems like Edgar has more stage time. In the text. In the te- yeah, I think especially in the text, Edgar has more scene time, on stage time. Edmund, just because he has those soliloquies, is more in your face. <laughs> yeah. I also didn't like Edmund's voiceover. I don't know if that's just me. Some may not mind. Two things. Edmund had some direct-to-the-camera monologues and soliloquies, and then they reverted to voiceover. But I was taken out of it because other characters didn't look at the camera Mm. and it just felt disconnected from the world that they built. Yeah, I would have rather had those moments continue to be just said at me. But I mean, Edmund gets the short end of the stick in this adaptation, but that lends for there to be more thoughtfulness with Edgar. Yeah. I loved Christopher Eccleston as Oswald. Same. I was like, oh, this is an Oswald, but like I see this character in a different way now. Yeah, he was a bit cheekier, a bit snarky, and like besties with Goneril, but... Yeah, like this is Goneril's trusted manservant, and he mm-hmm. is like that private secretary that looks down his nose at everybody. It was great. It was great. I also want to talk about Gloucester's eyes. Oof. Oh. Yeah, oof. I loved the choices that were made in this one. Um, it was also brutal. Same. It was also, you know, the Duke of Cornwall pushing her to do something that she maybe didn't think she wanted to do. But then yeah, once she got over the initial shock of using her thumb, probably th- yeah. I think it was her thumb. Who- he guides her Ooh. hand and like yeah. up helps her do eyes. it. Yeah, so up to um, the first eye. It's also in the interrogation prior. She s- starts more on the timid side. When interrogating yeah. Gloucester and Cornwall pushes, you build. know, cajoles her to being more intense. And then she ends up screaming where for to Dover. Yeah. It never felt to me like he was pushing her to do something she didn't want to do. He was just kind of being like, no, no, this is in you. It's unleashing. Yeah. And then when it's finally fully unleashed, Cornwall is stabbed. He's dying. And he says, give me your arm. And her cruelty is in full force. And she just walks out. Yeah. I was like, oh, that is an excellent yeah. arc and an excellent choice. And here's the thing with Gondrel and Regan. You can't, especially Regan, you cannot escape her trajectory on the page. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is find a way to make it interesting, complex, and an arc. Yes. Where we don't resort to women are evil innately. Or they are completely innocent. Cordelia's. Exactly. I thought that this production did a fantastic job of really being like, these are all complex women. And two of them just mess up royally. Yes. 
I think that this production missed some of the like love triangle with Edmund. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I was like, if I didn't know the show well, I wouldn't miss it. Yeah. This one focused heavily on the family relationship, mm-hmm. the betrayal between primarily King Lear and his daughters. And right. then it focused a lot on the mending between Gloucester and Edgar. Edgar. Yeah. Yeah. I have a moment, but I love the way that they justified, am I in France? Mm. Cordelia's wearing French uniform. military uniform yeah. and Lear's in some sort of reverie and then sees the French flag on her. And I'm speaking as somebody who has had family members who have suffered from dementia. For me, moments like that felt recognizable. Mm-hmm. What am I doing? Where am I? Mm-hmm. Like switching between something grounded and something that's in their own mind. And I thought that Anthony Hopkins seemed to do an informed portrayal of Lear's mind Mm -hmm. at the end there. Yeah. And that's what it's about is how do you do Shakespeare now, making it informed with what Mm -hmm. we know and what we experience and what does aging mean now? Exactly. Mm -hmm. I have one last thing to say. Anthony Hopkins, at the very end, when Cordelia is dead, he walks up dragging her body in a body bag and just says the words howl. And I liked that because it felt Mm. like he was trying to command his subjects one last time. I didn't realize until then. I was like, oh, I've actually never really liked it when Lear all of a sudden comes out crying and screaming over Cordelia's body. I really like this because it gave him more of an arc in those final moments to just start angry and like mad. And then through the course of his speech, he was able to go to sadness. He was able to go to a place of just really fully broken before Mm -hmm. he died. I thought that making that choice, he didn't start sad and have to stay sobbing for a couple minutes. Yeah. He had more room to take us on an emotional journey, even in just that last scene. Yeah. When I watched that scene, I was I wrote down that I thought he was too calm, cool, and collected, but I wasn't thinking about it in that light. Mm-hmm. After he and Cordelia had repaired, I was expecting something more like what people usually do. So yeah. my reaction might have been because it was not what I was expecting. Like it, it wasn't assisting me in like a redemption for Lear, if that makes sense. Yeah. But also Lear doesn't have to be redeemed at the end of this. No, he messed up. He He messed messed up up. real bad. So, you know, from where Anthony Hopkins begins to where he ends, maybe that is the ending for this Lear because why do we have to redeem him? His daughters are the ones who lose. Basically, because of his vanity, they're all dead now. And to me, it felt like it was that grief that is like beyond tears Yeah, that he came out with. He was empty and he was done. Yeah. And then he yeah. was able to go on this and he little, was like, able to die. We talked about in our aging episode about the character of Lear embracing Cordelia at the end can be interpreted as like the embrace of death. Mm-hmm. And to me, I was like, oh, this is a scene that really goes there because here he is kind of doing a mini stages of grief of like denial, anger, bargaining, and then acceptance. And he, you know, is just like undo this button. Yeah. I was like, I believe that death is of a broken heart way more than I do the big wailing sobs at the mm-hmm. end of a production. 
I'll have to rewatch Anthony Hopkins' final scene with that in mind because mm-hmm. for some reason I just want, you know, I want Lear to learn his lesson. And the five stages is a really rad way to analyze his performance mm-hmm. versus this is his relationship to Cordelia. It's like, no, this is his relationship to the entirety of his life, the decisions from the play and anything that we don't have from before. Mm-hmm. I would watch this one again, 100%. I'd watch this one for fun, not even for like, <laughs> just for a podcast. I finished it and I said, why can't we have something like this for Macbeth? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unlike Macbeth, where the recommendation is, go to the Sir Ian McKellen, Dame Judi Dench mm-hmm. medieval production, yeah. the more classical adaptation. For this one, it's go to the 21st century London. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you don't know King Lear that well, this one is incredibly accessible. Yeah. Listeners of the podcast, I recommend watching this adaptation if you want something that's informed and accessible and enjoyable. 100% behind that. Mm -hmm. Co-endorse. Yes. (laughs) We rarely endorse things, too. (laughs) Usually it's grumble, grumble, grumble. Yeah. yeah, we have something we like and want to recommend this time. Yes, I'm so glad about that. Um, let's see. I have a couple notable adaptations of Lear. Mm-hmm. So there's some that maybe if you're interested in checking out, these are not Lear from the text. They're, let's take the story, the characters, the experience, and place it into something else. The first one is Edward Bond's 1971 Lear. For Bond, he said it was artistically lazy to admire Lear's suffering. He said it's nice and comfortable. You don't have to question yourself or change your society. And that we now have to use the play for ourselves, for our society, for our time, for our problems. And his adaptation, which was a stage production, Uh, synthesized the Western world, Britain's paranoia of totalitarianism, and set this play in a world with the barrier of the Iron Curtain. So theater historian and critic Catherine Wirth wrote of the first production that the wall effectively disrupted, quote, the familiar Shakespearean ambiance, unquote. In addition, Bond has always been on the receiving end of damning reviews for its violence. This production is really, really violent. In this production, many characters are renamed and the dialogue is appropriating Shakespeare's Lear. It's not from the source material. The eldest daughters are cruel and Cordelia is the one who orders Lear's death. Bond did not actually like Cordelia, so he decided that she'd be the one to order the death. And in the final scene, Lear has acquired moral authority and humility. So he says, quote, Our lives are awkward and fragile and we have only one thing to keep us sane. Pity and the man without pity is mad. Unquote. Hmm. Mm-hmm. In Bond's Lear, Lear dismantles the wall. That's the last scene. This wall is a symbol of his power, and at the end, he dismantles the wall and is shot. So Bond is using Lear as a vehicle for writing about the moral of cyclical violence. Okay. Yeah. There's also Akira Kurosawa's 1985, I believe it would be pronounced Ron because it's Japanese, so R-A-N, and Ron means Mm -hmm. desolation of the soul. 
You might know Kurosawa, and we certainly talked about Kurosawa in our Macbeth adaptation because Kurosawa is the director of Throne, Throne of, of Blood. Blood. Yes. And Seven Samurai, and but Seven for Samurai. Shakespeare. Exactly. But Throne of Blood. Throne of Blood for Shakespeare fans. And so that one is the Macbeth adaptation. And this one, Ron, is King Lear. Kurosawa set his Lear in Japan's Sengoku period, which is 1392 to 1568. And it's the time of civil war between rival clans. This film is an alternative to the stories of Motonari Mori, which is a 16th century warlord who has three sons. And Kurosawa had Lear in mind when he thought, like, what would happen if the sons were not dutiful? So the sons mm. paralleled the three daughters in King Lear. Yeah. Okay. And the movie starts with the division of the kingdom and disloyal children and the fallout of that through the lens of Japanese culture. Uh, something that Kurosawa had said was, quote, what has always troubled me about King Lear is precisely that Shakespeare gives his characters no past. We are plunged into the agonies of their present dilemmas without knowing how they got to this point. In Ron, I tried to give Lear a history. I tried to make it clear that his power must rest upon a lifetime of bloodthirsty savagery, unquote. Not wrong. Mm -hmm. Not wrong. <laughs> uh -huh. Having dissected this play and looking at it through different lenses, it would be nice to know more about Goneril and Regan and Cordelia's relationship to their father so that we don't jump to women are all evil or they're all good. Yeah. Yeah. Agree with Kurosawa. Uh -huh. Yep. Ron is also heavily influenced by no theater. And for our listeners, that's a major form of classical Japanese dance drama that has been performed since the 14th century. And it's often based on tales from traditional literature with a supernatural being transformed into human form as a hero narrating a story. No integrates masks, costumes, and various props in a dance-based performance. And it requires highly trained actors and musicians. So Ron is, you take King Lear, Japanese history, no influence, and you mush it all together. That sounds great. Mm -hmm. I want to watch that. Same. I think it might be on YouTube for free, so I would check that out. And the last one that I read about is Jane Smiley's A Thousand Acres from 1991. Uh, she's the author of the book, and then the book was turned into a film. And Smiley's engagement with Lear, I guess, had begun with resistance that she had, quote, a longstanding dissatisfaction with an interpretation that privileged the father's needs over the daughter's and had a desire to address the ways in which she found the conventional readings of King Lear frustrating and wrong, unquote. Two areas in particular that she found frustrating with Lear was first Lear himself. She called him selfish, demanding, humorless, self-pitying and wholly incapable of change in his female relationships. And the second thing is that Goneril and Regan were universally demonized. So Smiley challenges simplistic notions by substituting an alternative of domestic conflict. Quote, I could not allow Shakespeare's universality, but instead had to counter it with the universality of my own vision. Unquote. And the basic plot is that in A Thousand Acres, Larry Cook is an aging farmer who decides to incorporate his farm handing complete and joint ownership to his three daughters, Ginny, Rose, and Caroline. When the youngest daughter objects, she is removed from the agreement, and this sets off a chain of events that brings dark truths to light and explodes long-suppressed emotions. And, trigger warning, the story eventually reveals the long-term sexual abuse of the two eldest daughters that was committed by their father. So that is where Jane Smiley takes King Lear. Interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I have not read or seen any of those, but those are notable adaptations. And there are some other films. Uh, if you go onto Wikipedia, there's a handful. Yeah, there's a couple with Anthony Schur mm. as Lear, mm -hmm. which I'm sure are incredible. Mm -hmm. Oh, I did not mean that to be a pun. <laughs> I don't believe Anthony that. Anthony Schur, who I'm certain uh -huh. there's, there's some good productions. There's going to be a new production of King Lear this summer that we're very excited about. Mm -hmm. That is the Catherine Hunter King Lear. Catherine Hunter, who, if you watched the Denzel Washington Macbeth, she plays all three of the witches. Mm -hmm. She's a fantastic Shakespearean actor. But the Globe Theater is revamping the 1997 production that was directed by Helena Kauthausen and Catherine Hunter was the first female actor in Britain to play King Lear on the professional stage. So this was groundbreaking. And when we talked about sexism in King Lear, we talked about how Kauthausen was thinking more about aging than she was the role of women, but how how does then in aging our, Yeah, in our old age and Yeah. How does yeah, aging affect our old age women? and aging episode we brought this up again yep. because we're seeing other productions with actors who identify as women cast as Lear and that it seems to be very timely mm -hmm. to explore having a female identified Lear right now. Yeah. I wish I could go to England and see that production, but I'm crossing my fingers that Shakespeare's Globe releases it to their, their, player. their player. Yeah, they're streaming because that sounds like yeah. a performance I would really, really want like to see. see. Yeah. 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 Other than that, I mean, there's not that much out there. There are 10 King Lear films. Uh, one of them is a USSR film from 1971. And then there's a couple other adaptations based on the story, not using the source material. There's a, a comedy drama from 2017 called The Lears. Yeah. On a family weekend, the father explodes a bombshell for his children that he will marry his assistant and everything gets complicated. Okay. Really, not much in the way of adapting this story. Well, you know, it may not be done often, but it seems like for the most part, it's done well when it is. Yeah. So can't complain. Yeah. I was very happy with yeah. my King Lear viewing. As was I. Mm -hmm. And I'm really happy that we dove into this play and I'm excited for what we dive into next. Same. Thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is... Shakespeare Anyone? Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits... Here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you.
from Measure for Measure, Act 1, Scene 2, said by Claudio. But it chances the stealth of our most mutual entertainment with character too gross is writ on Juliet. <laughs> 